0: It is now eight o'clock Eastern time. Um, so I would love to welcome you all to the second part of a three-part class series in connection with Tricia Summer-Cowell on the theme of universalism and particularism. Uh, tonight we are joined by Dr. Malka Simkovich for a session called The Early Development of Jewish Universalism from the Bible to the Rabbinic Period. Dr. Simkovich is the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and the Director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. She is the author of The Making of Jewish Universalism From Exile to Alexandria in 2016 and Discovering the Second Temple Literature, The Scriptures and Stories that Shaped Early Judaism in 2018 which received the 2019 AJL Judaica Reference Honor Award. Simkovich's articles have been published in journals such as the Harvard Theological Review and the Journal for the Study of Judaism as well as on online forums such as The Lairhouse, the Torah.com*, and the Times of Israel. She is involved in numerous local and international interreligious dialogue projects, which help to increase understanding and friendship between Christians and Jews. We encourage you to ask questions either by unmuting yourself or putting questions in the chat or the comments on Facebook. And if you're comfortable doing so, we would love for you to turn on your camera and actively participate throughout the class so it feels like we are all in the same virtual space. And without further ado, Dr. Malka Simcovich.
1: Good evening. Thank you very much for that very nice introduction. It's good to see all of you. Uh, And I'm very grateful to Drisha for organizing this lecture series. I'm doubly grateful to Drisha uh, this evening because my daughter has just uh, started camp at the Drisha Summer Girls High School, so I feel very connected to Drisha this summer, uh, and I'm very appreciative of all that they do. Uh, The theme of universalism has a very close, very special place in my heart. Um, It is the subject of my dissertation. It is the reason why I got a job at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Little did I know that Catholics would be interested in the theme of universalism as it pertains to the formation of Christianity and Judaism. Uh, Universalism is my entry point into the world of Hellenistic Judaism. But the truth is, is that when I tell people about my interest in universalism, you know, everybody has some sort of exposure to this word. It's actually really overused. It's bandied around. You'll see it in a lot of contemporary writings. You'll see it in the writings of Rabbi Sachs. You'll see it in the writings of all kinds of contemporary modern uh, Jewish theology. It is rarely defined. This is a term that's incredibly problematic. And over the years, I have tried to use it less and less. Uh, I, I love universalism, but the word itself, uh, the ideas are great. The word is very, very problematic. Um, tonight we're going to talk about why it's so problematic and whether there is a usefulness uh, to it uh, today. Uh, so we're going to start with a working definition of universalism and this working definition is, um, it, it, it works in opposition, I think, to the vast majority of definitions that you will see are presumed in other Jewish writings. So most of the time, if you read about universalism in contemporary theology, whether it's Christian theology or Jewish or another religion, you will find very often that the person using this word presumes that universalism correlates with an openness to conversion. Uh, You will see this commonly in uh, Christian theology. And so the question often is uh, if, a well, I'm not gonna say it's a question, but the definition or the degree to which a community is universalist is correlated with the degree to which a community is open to conversion. Now, if you spend five seconds thinking about that you realize how problematic that is because conversion presumes an in and out model there's a covenantal community. And if you're in the covenantal community, you become beneficiaries of God's salvific promises. So you get to be saved, right? Doesn't matter what religion. If you're out of the community, you are no longer a full beneficiary of God's salvific promises. And so the first thing, the starting premise of my work, my dissertation, but also tonight's talk, is that universalism, cannot have anything to do with conversion. In fact, it has to actually operate against conversion because conversion presumes there are people in and there are people out. And if you're out, you don't get those benefits. Is that universal? Right. I'm not saying is that good or is that bad? I'm not putting any kind of qualification on it, but that's not universal. Uh, that's not a, a viewpoint I think that accommodates an idea that all people can connect with the divine. I want to suggest that universalism is not about the degree to which a covenantal community is open to conversion, but universalism is the degree to which a community is open to those outside of their covenantal community, worshiping alongside that covenantal community, worshiping the same God. So in other words, the degree to which you invite others to worship alongside you without asking them to change that's universalist right otherwise you're in a covenantal uh, particularist model so the question is this idea inviting other ethnic groups religious groups other communities outside the world of early judaism inviting those communities to worship the one true god without converting into the covenantal community did this idea exist in early judaism The answer is yes. Otherwise, I wouldn't have anything else to say tonight. Uh, The answer is that it did. Uh, The idea is very rare. It's rare in the biblical text, in the Tanakh, but it becomes a very powerful idea by the end of the Second Temple period. And by the end of the Second Temple period, we see that it's so pervasive, especially in uh, Greek writings produced by Jews in the diaspora, but also Hebrew writings produced by Jews in Judea, It's so pervasive that it infiltrates the early Christian community in a very powerful way. Now, today, many scholars will say, well, Christianity, actually, good scholars won't do this, but you'll see this in older scholarship. Christianity is universalist. Judaism is particularist. uh, Christianity is ethical. Judaism is ritual. Uh, This is obviously a very problematic binary. Um, And most scholars today will complicate that. What I do see still happening, though, is that scholars will say Christianity and the universalist ideas that have developed borrowed heavily from Hellenistic thinking, from the Greeks, from specifically the Stoics in the second century BCE. Now, what I try to argue is that this is not the case. That doesn't make any sense, actually, if you think about it, if you have some familiarity with the historical context of the New Testament, Paul is an Aramaic speaker. He has some trouble with Greek, he gets he gets the job done, but he's from Judea, he is a Jew. In the first century, it is much more likely that Paul got these universalist ideas from Jewish texts who in turn were influenced by the Stoics, right? So there's a lot at stake here. Is early Christianity operating within the world of Stoicism, Hellenism, paganism, or what I think is that it was heavily influenced by Jewish ideas, which are operating in the broader world of Greco-Roman thought. We have to start at the beginning. We're going to start by looking at the Tanakh, and we're going to ask, are there seeds of universalism in the Hebrew Bible? And again, universalism here, not In openness to conversion, but an invitation to all people to worship the one God alongside one another without changing their ethnicity or their religion. Um, It's also very important that I sort of put conversion to the side because if you, uh, I'm sure you've thought of this, there is no category of conversion when it comes to the Tanakh. The notion of conversion is a later idea. It probably, Um, become sort of a systemic normative process, not earlier than the second century BCE. So what do you have in the Hebrew Bible? Of course, you have very famous individuals who join the Israelite community, right? You can name them. Ruth is a very famous one. Naaman is another one. The father-in-law of of Moshe, uh, Itro, right? These are people who join Israelite community? Sure, that's, there's no question that these uh, the stories of these people are very powerful and compelling. Are they converts? I would say no, because there wasn't a system, a process by which you would have to undertake a certain uh, um, set of practices and doctrines. These were people who joined the Israelite community, but the system of conversion, that comes much later. Okay, now let's, uh, let's do some texts. And again, we're going to start with the latest strata of the Hebrew Bible. We're going to enter into the Tanakh through the latest texts. And these are texts that I think were written in the post-exilic period. So here we're going to be a little bit, uh, I-, I guess, I-, I don't want to say controversial because I don't think this is controversial, but we're going to look at Zechariah, we're going to look at Yeshayahu. Um, I'm not going to actually uh, take questions yet. I will start taking questions towards the end of class. Uh, So unless you don't understand me, unless there's a term that I don't define, unless I'm going too fast, please save your questions for the last 10 or 15 minutes. And then I'm gonna, I'm going to uh, look at those questions. Thank you very much. Um, So we are going to look at texts that I think are being produced after the Babylonian exile, that is to say the early second temple period the early persian period so let's look and see what we have at this time all right so i'm never sure hold on one second you uh okay let's see what comes up here okay so do you see seeds of universalism in the time ta- okay wonderful okay so zechariah 14 is very mysterious text fascinating um fascinating book that many of us i think are not familiar with um Hold on a second. Okay. So Zachariah, this book of Zachariah ends with a fascinating theme and it's a very um, unusual image. This, some might call it an apocalyptic text, but in this image we have some kind of end of days event where there's a massive destruction there's divine judgment. Okay, that's not so unusual for biblical prophetic literature. We do see apocalyptic texts, uh, and there are many, many examples of that, but what's unique about that is about this text is that there is an image of all nations streaming to Zion, to Jerusalem, and celebrating not just offering as non, we wouldn't say Jews, we would say Judeans, because the word Jews doesn't quite work for this early stage, but we have these various communities coming to Jerusalem, and they're not simply coming to worship the one true God. They are coming to celebrate the festival of Sukkot. So these are non-Jews, and there's no evidence that they're assimilating or what we'd call, I mean, again, I don't like the word converting, but joining this community. No, they're not joining into the Israelite community, they're simply worshiping the Israelite God. And how are they doing that? Through the holiday of Sukkot. This is actually highly unusual, this image. So you know, we could do the Hebrew, but the Hebrew actually is hard, quite hard, but this is actually, these, these verses are not so hard. Okay, so after all the destruction, after this massive judgment that causes enormous casualty on both the Judean end and the non Judean end. Um, after that, those who survive, Kohan who Natar, the subscribed, Habaim, uh, that have come against Jerusalem, uh, what will they do? They will come up and worship one true God. So those enemies of Jerusalem are then going to go to the rebuilt city and worship God. And how? They are going to go celebrate Chag HaSukot, very interesting. Now, Mark Brettler, my professor at Brandeis, now he's at Duke, noted to me that Chag HaSukot, this was actually associated, this agricultural festival was associated with the new year in the ancient Near East. So it's not just one of the pilgrimage holidays, but it has a deeply significant um, uh, meaning that's associated with renewal. Uh, in in ancient times. Okay, I'm just going to stick with the English just because we have so many sources that I'd like to get to. Um, Okay, so they're going to celebrate Sukkot, and this is what's very, very sort of alarming. What happens if they don't celebrate Sukkot? If any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem, what's going to happen to them? there will be no rain upon them. Now we know rain to be a very purely covenantal expression, a barometer of how the relationship between Israel and God is doing, right? If you look at Devarim, if you look at other parts of the Tanakh, rain is something that's really covenantal. If the people in the land of Israel are good, they get rain. If the people are sinful, they don't get rain. And now this covenantal barometer is being applied to all these other nations why? Because these nations who don't keep Sukkot are going to be punished in the same way that traditionally the people of Israel have been punished when they sin. There's no indication here, however, that these people become Israelites. In fact, just the opposite. Throughout this passage, they're referred to as the Mishpachot Haaretz, the families of the earth. They don't become Israelites. So here we have these various communities coming to Israel, uh, coming to the land of Israel. And if they are doing it right, they keep Sukkot. And if they are not, they are punished. And rain is specific usually to the land of Israel. But the indication here is that where's the rain not falling in their own lands. And so this period in which God becomes the universal God of all the families of the earth, suddenly all the families of the earth, as they are in their own ethnicities and their own religious worship, they're all subject to the same covenantal rules. Now, this to me, is universalist, right? Because we don't see all people becoming Israel. That's not apparent in the text. It doesn't say everyone is going to be Israel, and so we're going to have this, you know, all people on the planet are now suddenly B'nai Israel. That's not what it says. No, everyone is part of the Mishpichot Adama or the Mishpichot Ha'aretz. And yet, they all have the same rules that they're playing by, and they all worship the one true God. This is a really, really remarkable text, I think. And this notion, Actually, when I was uh, researching for my dissertation, I literally leafed through every page of the 10 because that's what you do when you're a masochistic PhD student and you're willing to do crazy things. Uh, I literally, I mean with a pencil, just like went through it uh, from front to back over the course of like four months, and I only found two other texts that really came close to this kind of image. And what's interesting about the other texts that I found is that they bracket what's known as Third Isaiah. So I'm not gonna go into the various controversies regarding the authorship of the book of Yeshayahu. Yeshayahu is known as an eighth century Jerusalemite court prophet for King Chizkiyahu at a time when Judea is in crisis. The Northern Israelite kingdom has just been exiled by Assyria. Uh, Judea is in crisis. It ends up not being exiled by Assyria in the late 8th century, but they almost are, and then they end up being exiled by Babylonia. But the point is, it's a turbulent time. Most scholars do attribute the last 11 chapters of Yeshua to a later, uh, to a later author, and we can talk about why uh, why that is. So I will, um, I will be treating this like a, a, a later text, and I don't want that to derail the conversation. You can all have your own opinions about it. We'll look at the text as it is, and then we can, uh, we can think about this together or perhaps separately. But in any case, in Yeshayahu 56, Nenhei, and at the very, very end of this long book of Yeshayahu in 66, we have an image of all nations streaming to Zion, and again, no evidence of assimilation. And this is very important, because if they assimilate, if they become Israel, to me that's not universalist because then they're entering into this covenantal community where there are outsiders who are not right but look at how carefully this image is constructed and we have this word Neil Veen it's very hard words these people the foreigners who Neil who stick themselves uh, it's not joining is sort of like a weak translation they glue themselves onto god to serve this god and not only do these foreigners glue themselves to god to serve him but they love they love the name of the lord they want to be god's servants again i'm gonna be very obnoxious and use an academic phrase it's a really horrible word that i'll never use again hopefully deuteronomistic by which i mean divarim right? Devarim uses, remember, what was the word that we saw in the first source that appears in Devarim? Oh, the notion of rain, the theme of rain, right? And so here we have this notion of being servants to God. This is a very important theme in Devarim, because remember, the people are servants to Paro, they're avadim in Egypt. And then Moshe gives a speech after 40 years in the desert, and he says, you're still avadim, guess what? Newsflash, you're avadim, you're no longer slaves though, you're servants, you're avadim, it's the same word, you're avadim, to God, and that brings you a sense of liberation, but you're still avadim, right? So these b'nai nechar, these foreigners, want, they desire to be avadim, just like the Israelites are told that they have to be avadim for God in terms, the same language. And how are they going to observe their, how are they going to express their connection to this God through the most covenantal way possible, through the observance of Shabbat? These foreigners are gonna to go to Zion. They're gonna to go to the land of Israel. They're gonna keep Shabbat. They're going to be machazikim bivriti. They're going to hold fast to my comment. What am I going to do for these people? God says, I am going to bring them to my heart to my holy mountain to my heart and i will make them joyful in my house of prayer they will bring me sacrifices i will accept them and then we have this very famous very powerful uh, verse because my house shall be called the house of prayer for all people and again what's what i think is very powerful here is that they're still amin so they have not become israel right because I'm saying this, I God Israel. I am the one who gathers the outcasts of Israel, but these people are not Israel, right? Those are two separate communities. All the foreign nations are going to come to the land of Israel and do something very similar to what we see in Zechariah 14. They're going to take on covenantal practices, but it doesn't seem like they're fully assimilating. And that notion is reinforced in the very, very final words of the book, Yeshayahu. This is actually a very dark passage. It's cited as a passage of redemption, but that's because many uh, leave off the final sentence, uh, which is um, a sentence of destruction, a verse of destruction, which I have left off here as well. You can look it up. Um, Okay, so God says, I know their thoughts. I know their works. I'm coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. So again, they're going to retain their original, their ethnicities. They're not going to assimilate. I'm going just like God is the gatherer, mikabetz nidchei Israel, but what is God also? He is mikabetzet kol ha'goim behalishonu. So those are separate categories, right? God is going to gather in the outcasts, the exiled people of Israel. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why scholars say this is a later text. Um, Judea hasn't been exiled in the late 8th century BC, but God is also the gatherer of all the nations. Why? Because they're gonna come to Zion and they're going to see my glory and I'm gonna set a sign upon them. And um, I I think I wanna sort of move away from this text to get into the second temple literature, Uh, but... uh, (laughs) One of the most sort of shocking verses, I think, in all of you maybe all of Tanakh, is what God is going to do with these foreigners who come to worship in Zion. What's he going to do? In case you missed the point <laughs> where earlier, God tells these foreign nations, you have to observe in covenantal ways. You have to worship in covenantal ways. God says, I'm going to take from them priests and Levites. I'm going to take from them the ga mayhem ekach Lalevi'im Amara Danai. So it's gonna be a whole new world. All of these communities are going to worship me in ways that look identical to how only Israel worships me today. And yet they're going to retain their separateness from Israel. What kind of world is this, right? This seems so different than the end of days images that I was familiar with as a child, end of days images where the foreign nations will be judged harshly and Israel, light will shine upon Israel. That all the exiles will be gathered in Jerusalem, and everybody will know that the Israelite God has, uh, you know, sort of vanquished the people's enemies. But that's not this image at all, right? All foreign nations will worship God in like manner, and yet they will retain their identities as separate from Israel. So, what do you do with this? Is this is this simply marginal? Is this peripheral? Is this an idea? That just was sort of experimental for some biblical writers, but it ended up being thrown into the waste basket of—I'm <laughs> trying to think of something eloquent to say—the waste basket of time. Uh, is this peripheral? Uh, it's really not. Becomes a very, very dominant idea, and that's what we're going to trace right now. Uh, and and the way that this becomes a mainstream idea is there's a transition that happens in the latest strata of biblical texts. See, Zechariah and Nishayahu are talking about the distant future, a time that is not now, something that is not relevant to our daily life and worldview, something that is going to happen when God decides to actively enter into the realm of human affairs and judge as all deserve to be judged. But the latest texts of Tanakh also pull that image from the distant future into the present tense. And that pulling from the future into the present tense begins to shape the world views of Judeans living in the diaspora. How does this happen? Well, I'm going to show you a few texts that actually suggest that the, in the here and now, Judeans or Israelites can view the nations around them as potential worshipers of the one true God. But before I go into these texts, I want you to think what's happening in the early Second Temple period. Something unprecedented is happening. The Jews have not returned to the land of Judea. After the Babylonian exile, which starts in around 586, and it comes to a close around 538, Cyrus, the Persian king, has taken over the Babylonian kingdom. And he says to the Judeans in exile, you can go back. And many of them do, 43,000 about go back. And many tens of thousands do not go back. And there's a big question that scholars have to Jews at this time, Judeans perceive the exiles having come to a close. It couldn't have really come to a close because not everybody returned. On the other hand, everyone had technical permission to return. So one could argue that God had ended the exile and yet the people hadn't acted upon that permission to return. And so you have this era of confusion at the same time, Jews are spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading throughout the, throughout the diaspora. And so for the first time ever, you have this community of Israel that is global. And so all kinds of questions arise when you're dealing with a global community that has ties, that has roots to a certain land, that has a common national memory, common scriptures, common notions of covenant. And yet they're spread out across the world and there, becomes to, there arises this sort of recognition. We are not all going to be living in one small place forever and ever again. That's not our imminent, maybe that's in the far future when God forces it to happen, but it's not our imminent present. And so theological questions arise such as, what does our God say about all of humankind, about our neighbors, right? About our Babylonian neighbors in the East and later our Roman and Greek and Egyptian neighbors in the West. How should we as the covenantal people relate to all of humankind? These are new questions. It used to be in the ancient Near East that gods are local, they're geographic, they're ethnic. You go to one place, you worship the local God, you go to another place, and then you worship, you take on the gods of that local area, right? The Judeans are the first to say, no, our God is universal and wherever you go, that God goes with you, right? The the rabbis had very beautiful articulations of this idea in the midrash They say that, that, that there's a, I don't remember where it is, which, what source it is, but there's a very famous me, image, I mean, image of God going down into exile with the people. So by the Hellenistic period, uh, well, I'll say this maybe later, I'm not going to get into this so much now, but as Jews are contending with these ideas, how does our universal God relate to all of humankind today? Not in the far future, in the apocalyptic future, but now, there arises contemporaneous accusations against the Jews that they are particularist. That they are clinging to their ancestral laws, that they are not properly assimilating into their host uh, cultures, that they are holding on to these antiquated ideas, that they are not progressive. As Jews are saying, wait, 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 wait. our God is universal, and our God cares about all of humankind. How do you square that? Sorry, uh, how do you square that with the covenantal? Uh, by the way, I just had to pause and say that the person who just texted me is my daughter Atresha who's a half an hour late but she wants to join this year. Uh, so I don't know how she's going to get the link but maybe she'll just watch a recording. Um, okay so I, I lost my train of thought. Okay so the question is um, how do Jews retain this notion of covenant, of particularity, of, of election and at the same time the reality is they're spread all over the world and they're contending with questions that are universal questions. What is our relationship with humanity, what is our God's relationship with humanity. So this, is, this is a uh, balancing act, and they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be both universalist and particularist. Uh, and I will argue that actually those categories should not be viewed as an opposition to one another. But let's look at a few biblical texts. And I think that these texts, some are from T. and then I'll show you Danielle, but uh, we're not going to spend so much time on this because I want to get to the later Second Temple literature, but I bring these texts to you because they're evidence that there are writers, and I view these texts as later, as post-exilic, there are writers who are bringing this notion of in the far future, God is going to gather all of the nations and they'll all worship God alongside one another without converting into Israel. That idea is infiltrating the present reality of certain Jews in the early second temple period. And this idea solves the problem of how do we live in the diaspora under a host culture, contend with a global human population and retain our covenantal uh, community, our sense of cohesiveness. And so look at this very beautiful, I'm sure many of you on this call have recited this, um, have liturgically recited this Psalm, uh, but look at what, we're singing. If you sing this song on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, look at what this truly is. This is an invitation to all people. This is not a covenantal song. This is an invitation to all people to recognize the one true God. And not only that, but this is where it gets remarkable to bring offerings in the temple. In the Jerusalem Temple, which historically was not open to Gentiles, so this is quite a radical idea. Um, all nations, and it's not in the far future. God is going to, you know, basically make everyone dead, and then the few survivors will come and worship. Uh, no, but this is a present tense uh, invitation to all the families of the earth to worship God. Um, and uh, again, you know, to, to what extent is this representative of normative thinking? And this is a very, very hard question. It's not an answerable question because we really also cannot date the psalm with definitiveness. What is the circle context of the psalm? I'm dating it late. That's what scholars tend to do. I'm not putting it in the second century BCE like some scholars might, but, uh, but I do think that this represents an early second temple period worldview. It could be earlier, but certainly this notion emerges after the exile. We can invite all the families of the earth to worship God in a way in which we can imagine them even serving God in those very particular ways that right now only Judeans serve God. Um, and look at this, uh, text in Daniel, uh, Daniel is, um, Well, scholars think that it's divided into two halves. There's the earlier stories, the court stories of Daniel and the court of the king. Uh, It's not always the same king, uh, but Daniel is a Persian courtier in the early Second Temple period. Sometimes he's talking to the King Nebuchadnezzar, who's Babylonian, Uh, but uh, Daniel was was known to be um, a courtier of the Persian court. And uh, the second half of Daniel, starting from chapter 7, is viewed to be a later apocalypse. But what I wanted to point you to is that there's a first-person um, first 1st singular speech uttered by the Babylonian king himself, Nebuchadnezzar, who is notorious for having cruelly exiled the Judeans to Babylonia. And here, after recognizing the, uh, Daniel's cleverness and great deeds, What does he do? He blesses God, the Most High. He praises the honored one who lives forever. And Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, the enemy not only of the Judean people, but of God, of the the God of Israel. And here we have him recognizing that the sovereignty of God is everlasting. His kingdom endures. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. So again, we have this move away from God's being local, geographic, specific to a certain region. And we have this universalization of the power of the Israelite God. So compelling and so enduring that even the Babylonian king recognizes the one true uh, omnipotence of Daniel's God. Now, could this have been you know, it's this historical archive, I would not read it, I would read it as aspirational. Uh, And the aspiration is that we can live in a world, the author says, in which uh, all people and even our enemies and the most powerful of those enemies can recognize the Israelite God and worship that God without assimilating into the covenantal community of Israel. Now, how does this manifest itself in later literature. And so now we have about 12 minutes to figure that out, maybe a little more, it depends how much time we want to leave for conversation. Uh, But I do want to sort of get into the nitty gritty here of what is going on in the late second temple period, because this is a period that's really overlooked. Um, When we talk about Tanakh, we sort of sequester it into its own hard canon, And then we talk about the rabbinic world, which is its own hard canon, I don't really think it's hard or a canon, but when we do that, we collapse everything in between. If the Tanakh ends in the early second temple period, yeah, in the early second temple period, and then the Mishnah is the earliest code of law or the earliest, um, it really isn't the earliest, but I would say the most well-known early rabbinic corpus, then you have about 600 years of Jewish history that you are not attending to. And this period is the period that gets us from biblical Judaism to the world of the rabbis. And so it's really, really very important. So let's look at a few texts that you might not be familiar with. And I wanna argue as follows. What kinds of expressions do we see that we would call universalist in second temple literature? So I think that there are four. One retains this future tense that we saw in Zechariah and Yeshayahu that in the end time, not immediately, but in the far off days when God decides to reveal himself through this very overwhelming, massive of judgment of all of humanity, all the nations will worship God and retain their own ethnic identities. You do see that. You see that in the book of Tobit. But that's no longer dominant. What's much more common in late Second Temple Jewish literature is something that's immediate in the present reality of the writer. So not that in the far future, God is going to invite all the families of the earth to worship, but actually that right now the world we live in is a world in which all people can fully actualize themselves as worshipers of God without converting. And there are three ways that Jews do that in the late second temple period. The first is, with, uh, is a model here, I don't know if you could see when I highlight, which imagines that all nations can worship the Israelite God, and every nation is separate, right? So that's very similar to what we saw with Daniel and Tehili. But there are other universalist texts that ignore the distinguishing markers of Judaism. And when I say distinguishing markers of Judaism, I mean, primarily the big three markers of Jewish practice, I always talk about this, the big three, that defined uh, common Judaism in the late Second Temple period, and that is Shabbat, dietary law, and circumcision. And you could layer on to that, coming together regularly to read and interpret the biblical scriptures. You might layer on to that specifically in the land of Israel, purity laws. But really, the main three things Shabbat, dietary law, circumcision, these were the identifying markers of Jewish practice in the late Second Temple period. And there are universalist texts written in Greek and Hebrew preserved, uh, composed and preserved in the the late second temple period that ignore these markers. Some ignore these markers because they imagine a world where everybody's Israel. And some ignore these markers because there is no Israel and the covenantal model is eliminated. And you might guess the end of the sad story is that it seems that those communities ended up over time assimilating into their host communities. We don't have, we, we, we lose track of them uh, after the, the first or second century CE, we lose track of them. But I think again, that there are three models of universalist expression in the late second temple period one where Judaism retains its distinctive practices, kashrut, dietary law circumcision, and the other nations and other families can worship the one true God and they have their own separate practices. But then there are also texts that eliminate these distinctive markers of Judaism, either by making everyone Israel or no one Israel. So let's take a look at a few fun texts. We're not going to do all of these sources. There's just no way. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to email Drisha this source sheet uh, sometime tonight. It will be posted online. You can take a look at it uh, on your own time, and I am also very happy to uh, hear from you if you want to email me with questions or comments. I, uh, in the summer, I need more time to respond, but certainly uh, this is a springboard conversation. We're not going to be getting through all of this. Okay, so I want to introduce you to a fascinating document written in the second century BCE. It's barely an introduction because I just took a few little lines, but this document is the oldest attestation that we have to the process by which the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, into the Septuagint. It's the oldest source, it's a second century BCE source. We have Philo of Alexandria who uses this source to talk about how the text was translated into Greek. We have Josephus, we have the rabbis, very famous story about how there were 70 rabbis and they went, each went into a separate room and came out with the same, the same translation. But this is the oldest text that we have that talks about the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. It is an Alexandrian Jewish text. And it can also be read as an apology for Judaism. An apology doesn't mean, I'm sorry about Judaism. It means a defense of the integrity of the Jewish religion written for a Jewish audience, but sensitive to a potential Hellenistic readership. So the letter of Aristeas recalls the process by which the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek. And it opens up with a scene in which the courtier Aristeas asks Ptolemy to Philadelphus, the king, the Ptolemaic king of Egypt, that's so one of the three, uh, the three Hellenistic kingdoms that developed after the death of Alexander the Great. So we have this Ptolemaic Greek kingdom Overlays and includes Egypt. So Aristeas approaches the king, Ptolemy, to Philadelphus. This is, it takes place in the late third century BCE, but this is written in the second century BCE. And he says to the king, look, before we embark on the project of translation and before we bring 72 Judean scholars to Alexandria to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, we are asking that you, show us some goodwill, show the Jewish community goodwill. And it's unclear whether Arsaias is Jewish or not, uh, probably he is a Jewish courtier uh, in the court. Uh, and he says, Ptolemy to Philadelphus, you have Jewish captives from your previous conquests. Release those Jewish captives as a gesture of goodwill to the incoming Judeans who are coming to visit us to translate in Alexandria on the island of Pharos to translate, their Hebrew scriptures do this for the community. i will make them feel really good. And Ptolemy too does. He, he releases the Jewish captives that he had taken in his wars. But part of the argument that Aristeus makes is you really got to release these Jewish captives. Why? Because kumbaya, we're all the same. These people, these Judeans worship God, the overseer and creator of all, whom all men worship, including ourselves, O king, except that we have a different name. Their name for him is Zeus and Jove, but our name for him is the Tetragrammaton. In other words, we Jews and you Hellenists have one God. We have different names for this God, but you need not view the Jews as observing a separate religion if we all worship the same God. Now this is complicated by the fact that later in the book, he goes on a very extensive defense of the dietary laws where he explains that the dietary needs of the Judean scholars who come to Alexandria are fully accommodated, But he goes through a long, long, long tangent, hundreds of lines long, defending the rationales of dietary law. And it's probably the first of its kind to ever have been produced. It's the, as far as we know, the first systematic defense of the rationality of Jewish dietary law that we have. And so, Aristides does not ignore the distinguishing markers of Judaism. And there are references to Shabbat and there are references to Jewish practices throughout the work. There's a famous big symposium scene in the second half of the text where they sit around, they have this massive meal, and the king asks each scholar a question, a philosophical question, and the scholar answers with brilliant uh, responses that impresses the king. Uh, But the references to uh, specifically Jewish practices are there. So I, I think this, this is sort of a unique model. It's a universalist model, right? All people worship the same God, but <laughs> Judaism retains its distinctive aspects. A big proponent of this attitude is Philo of Alexandria, famous philosopher who lives from uh, around 20 BCE to 50 CE. Philo gets a bad rap. Sometimes he is mis represented as a Hellenized Jew, as an assimilated Jew, there are medieval manuscripts who refer to Philo as Philo Christianus, but no, he is Philo Judaicus. This is an individual who lived and breathed Judaism, who knew the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible cold, who absolutely believed in the importance of observing the ancestral laws, who emphasizes over and over the integrity of these laws, and at the same time believes that all of humanity can come together, worship the one true God and retain their individual identities. So it does seem to me that this is a a particularly Alexandrian approach, that we worship one God, the same God, but we Jews are Jews and we have our particular ancestral traditions that you don't necessarily have to observe. And Philo says, Philo deals with a lot of anti-Judaism, and I've actually addressed some of this in other Trisha courses that I've, or classes that I've taught in the past. What Philo had to to deal with is quite um, shocking and upsetting. There was a lot of rising anti-Judaism. Judaism in the first century in Alexandria, but I'm not going to address that now. And he says, it amazes me that some dare to charge the nation with an anti-social stance. And here, I think the Greek word is misanthropia, anti-person, misanthropy. So people are saying about the Jews, they're misanthropic, they're not team players, they're particularists, right? The Christians don't make up that stereotype, they borrow it from the Hellenists. A nation which has made such an extensive use of fellowship and goodwill towards all people everywhere, that they offer up prayers and feasts, and first fruits on behalf of the common race of human beings. So Phila says, Jews are worshiping on behalf of all of humankind and the the welfare of all people, and the people are accusing us of misanthropy. And so that tightrope where Jews claim to be the elected continental people and yet have this universalist outlook, it's not being successful because the Greeks and the Romans are still accusing these Jews of excessive particularism, of not being team players. When those Jews don't show up to the festival of Dionysus, they don't show up to those, fest- those public festivals celebrating the gods. And there's no distinction between public life and religious life in the ancient world. So when those Jews don't go to those festivals of the gods, they're bad Greeks, they're bad Romans. And Phala says, but that's not true. We care about everybody. <clears throat> We're praying for all of humankind. We're offering sacrifices for all of kind. For all of humankind, we all serve the self-existent God, both on behalf of themselves and of others who have run from the services which they should have rendered. Oh, that was very hard. These are the things that Jews do for the entire race of human beings. And so, Father was in despair. How could we be accused of such particularism when, despite our covenantal practices, we are worshiping and we are praying on behalf of all? Of uh, all of humankind. So I'm not going to, uh, I, I, I think I have to change the pace a little bit over here. <laughs> but so that's one model, right? So there's a universalism in the immediate present, and nations keep their distinctive aspects. But what about these two models that the distinctive aspects of Judaism are eliminated, right? In some texts, eliminated because there's this idea that all nations will assimilate into Israel in a fascinating text called Joseph and Aseneth. Uh, which is a, an imagining, a novella of the conversion. It's not a word that I use lightly, but the conversion of Joseph's wife Osnat, Asenath, into Judaism, Se- late second century BCE. Greek text, probably Alexandrian, Asenath converts. She enters into Israel and there's this image of all of humankind uh, being uh, invited into the community of Israel. But I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on this the radical allegorizers. And with that, we'll pull things together and we'll uh, have a conversation. The universalist idea that all of humankind can worship together outside of the framework of covenantal community was very appealing to Jews who were sensitive to accusations of particularism. Some of those Jews really uh, imbibed and internalized these accusations and they did not want to be perceived as particularists or claiming sort of special status as the elected people of God, they weren't comfortable with this. And if you can think of contemporary resonances that you're mapping onto your head right now in the year 2021, feel free because it's sort of tempting to do that, but that's not where I'm going right now. But uh, Philo talks about these Jews, that there are Jews who are abandoning their observance of ancestral law, and then presenting their Jewish identities as really identities that are universal in the sense that they invite all people to worship this one true God, and the distinctive an- ancestral laws fall to the wayside. So in other words, Philo angrily tells us that there are Jews in Alexandria who are no longer observing their ancestral laws. What are they doing? They're allegorizing those laws instead. And these are known as the radical allegorizers. Let me see if I could, okay, here, here's what he says. It's such a great phrase, the radical allegorizers. So Father's talking about Jews in Alexandria, Jews that he does not agree with. And he says, I Father's very hard, but let, let's try it anyway. There are some who, regarding laws in their literal sense, in the light of symbols of matters belonging to the intellect. In other words, there was a there was a way of allegorizing, and we see this with Alexandrian philosophers of allegorizing laws and allegorizing ideas, so that the true meaning, the true essence of something, is not its physical uh, representation, but the symbolic meaning behind it. And so Philo says this idea that you find in Greek philosophy is being applied by Jews to their ancestral laws. So what are they doing? They're saying that they're regarding their, literal, uh, their, their laws as symbols of matters belonging to the intellect. Um, so they're over punctilious about the latter. In other words, they care very much about the symbolic meaning of these laws, but they treat the former, the actual literal observance of these laws with easygoing neglect. Again, if you're having a hard time with Philo, join the club and you should try it in Greek. Some men, and I think that's a typo for my part, I'm not sure. Uh, should blame for handling the matter in too easy and offhand a manner. They ought to have given careful attention to both aims. Okay, for example, let's talk about Shabbat. It is quite true that the seventh day is meant to teach the power of the unoriginate God and the non-action of created beings. But just because you understand the symbolic meaning of the Shabbat does not mean that you could stop observing Shabbat. Let us not for this reason abrogate the laws laid down for its observance. You still cannot light fires on the Sabbath. Uh, Philo says, you still cannot till the ground. This is fascinating because this is one of the earliest references to some of these observances because these are, we find these in later rabbinic texts, but Philo is early first century, so this is pretty cool. You still cannot carry loads on the Sabbath or institute proceedings in court or act as jurors, right? All of this stuff you still cannot do. But there are Jews who are saying, well, we can do this as long as we understand the symbolic importance of the Sabbath, right? And Philo says, no, 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 no you have to retain the allegorical meaning and you also have to keep this out. Moreover, circumcision, another great example because it's a distinguishing marker of Judaism. It's true that receiving circumcision does portray the excision of pleasure in all passions and the putting away of impious conceit, right? There's a symbolic meaning of circumcision that has to do with our Humbling ourselves and this was considered very barbaric among Greeks to, to mutilate yourself through circumcision, but he says, but even if you understand the symbolic meaning of circumcision, let us. N- not on this account repeal the law lay down for circumcising you have to understand the symbolic meaning and still keep the laws and so philo is fighting against this attitude, which I would call you know this last model uh, where there is this universalist idea that all distinctive aspects of divine worship can be erased. Now, again, I am not going to focus on these other sources right now. Feel free to take a look at them. I will say the Sentences of pseudo facilities is a contested text, by which I mean some scholars believe this is an ancient Jewish text. Others say this is a third or fourth century Christian text. I treat it as Jewish because the beginning section is a paraphrasing, I think, of the Septuagint. And uh, I, there are hints here to me of a Jewish writer. Um, but there are many scholars who say it's a Christian text, which if it was, I would think that it would reference Jesus in some way. And it doesn't. Um, anyway, you could look at these, these texts. They're all Second Temple. Besides pseudo facilities, they're pretty much all, all squarely late Second Temple texts written in Greek, by observant or identifying Jews um, in the late second temple period. Okay, but let's wrap up. So what, what do I? What do we, you know, what's the takeaway here? Okay, let me find out how to stop share and then let's uh, have a conversation. Oh, wow, so much in the chat. Oh my word, okay, well, that's very nice. Uh, okay, but we're not gonna look at that yet. Okay, wrapping up, why is all of this important? So like I said, Jews want to have their cake and eat it too, right? they embrace universalist values. A big problem I think that we have when we don't learn these second temple documents is that we think that they're marginal, they're peripheral, they're not normative, they're not representative of typical Jewish thinking. But the fact is, is that this was very typical Jewish thinking. We know this because universalist ideas are expressed in various languages by Aramaic-speaking Jews, right, Daniel, Hebrew-speaking Jews, Tobit, Tovia was originally written in Hebrew, Greek-speaking Jews, Philo, letter of our when an idea finds its way into multiple languages in multiple cultural contexts, that tells you that this idea traveled, that this idea had, had some sort of compelling power over more than one community. It's not sectarian. This was a real powerful idea. And at the same time, Greeks and Romans and later Christians did not accept the claim that Jews could be universalists. In fact, they accused Jews of exactly the opposite of exclusivity, of particularism. And Jews, in turn, were sensitive to these accusations. Now, like I said, ultimately the extreme allegorizers of Alexandria probably did end up assimilating into their host uh, communities and Jews became increasingly particularist. So by the time the temple falls in 70 CE, and by the time there is what we'd call a rabbinic community in the second uh, century or third century CE, what becomes normative Judaism is certainly covenantal rabbinic Judaism, right? What we might call particularist Judaism. but At its core, universalism and particularism, they're not in tension with one another. Every religion has both. Every religion has to be particularist because it has to make a truth claim about a particular community's relationship with their God and universalist in the sense that it has to contend with the relationship between this community and the community of uh, humankind. Uh, Nevertheless, the notion that Judaism was and is a particularist community. It's a very powerful one that has endured into contemporary times. I hear it very often from my students. I read, uh, I read a lot of literature uh, written in you know, the past 30, 40 years that presumes Judaism is particularist but the picture is much more complicated than many assume. What I would suggest is thinking very deeply about the complexities of universalism, but also being very careful about the term and how we use it. Okay, at this time, I'm going to, uh, well, we're 45 people, so I'm not sure whether I should take questions in the chat or invite people to, um, to unmute themselves. Oh, I see all kinds of fun comments. Uh, but I'm gonna ask whether Noah or Sarah want to invite people to unmute. And I can go past eight o'clock Chicago time I, or nine o'clock Eastern time, I can go past. Uh, so however the moderators wanna do it, it's fine with me.
0: So I think the best way to do it, if you are on video, if you could either physically raise your hand or use the raise your hand function, if you were on Facebook or you prefer to use the chat, you can use that as well. That's probably the best way so people don't speak over each other. And then we'll call on you as hands go up. Oh, Arielle.
1: Hi, thank you again for this talk. Um, I'm part of Patricia's summer kohlel. Um,
0: and I'm curious um, to what extent you would say, um, talking about the Second Temple period, how great
1: of an influence was Cyrus's um, funding
2: approval of the Second Temple um, being rebuilt? Influential in terms of, um, you know, uh, having this view that non-Jews can give mm-hmm. note at the temple, and mm-hmm. that we have um,
1: sort of this view of the Beit Hamikdash as a place for all people. It's a fabulous question. I do think that there's a correlation between universalism and the fact that the Persians are the first to practice what we would call religious tolerance. And actually, it's a it's sort of a win lose situation because when things are good, the Jews tend not to write as much, and when things are in crisis, the Jews are like furiously producing literature. Uh, so the Persian period doesn't give us a lot of Jewish texts, at least not in. Compa- in comparison with late Second Temple texts, especially in the second century BCE. Uh, but it does seem clear that the, the sort of the seeding of universalist ideas are sown in the world of this enlightened, tolerant Persian society. And so I absolutely think that there is something there. And I think it's a very good insight.
3: Sorry. Um, so what is it about the, the, the second entry, the, the, the Joseph and Asnat, text that uh, I mean, I, assu- I assume that you're that you're 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 thinking that uh, that the Jewish particular observances drop out because they're not being mentioned in the text. Not unlike how they're not mentioned in Megillat Esther, by the way.
1: Hmm. Yeah, although what's interesting with that is that the Greek version of Esther sticks them all back in because the writer of the Greek version is like, what's going on here. There's no God, there's no, you know,
3: there, okay, there but just, no different- okay, but just, okay, but just, but, but just to stay with with Joseph and Asna, So, so there, there, there's, there, is it because there, there's no mention in those texts of particular Jewish practices that you're thinking that it gives evidence for a, a an intellectual community of Jews who are thinking that the world will become Jews, and at that point there will be no Torah, similar, mm. similar to I don't know to to early Reform Judaism.
1: Everybody does that. Everybody starts about yeah. Well, so I'm I'm, I'm just, I'm just
3: I'm, yeah. I, I, I think it's not a I bad think, mashal, and I, I mean, I mean it's it's understandable why one you know would would use that as a as a as a parallel we don't need we don't need to keep separate in other words we can drop ritual because we do not need to keep separate because everybody is now an ethical monotheist
1: correct so what's interesting i think about joseph and Aseneth is that there's a huge amount of unique literary liturgical material. So Aseneth prays and prays and prays. And it's not normative prayer. In other words, you don't see these liturgical texts elsewhere. But the prayer is very revealing. And in the source sheet, I have just a little bit of uh, the prayer. And again, I can send this to Drisha, but in the passage that I include on the source sheet, she says, uh, in you, um, in Aseneth, uh, well, this is a blessing that an angel gives Aseneth. many nations will take refuge with the Lord God and under your wings, many people trusting the Lord God will be sheltered. It's very beautiful, actually, behind your walls will be guarded those who attach themselves to the most high. So again, we have this, I think the Greek there, attach themselves is a correlation with the Hebrew Neil In other words, they're attaching themselves to God, but they're not necessarily attaching themselves to a covenantal community. And yet, coupled with the fact that there's no reference to any distinctive markers of Jesus, Judaism here. I think you have something It's actually very unique. I think you have this image of all people potentially entering into the covenantal community of Israel. Uh, But again, you have to read the text and then come to your own conclusion. It's a very difficult text. And the provenance is disputed. So I treated as second century BC, Ross Kramer and others treated as fourth century CE Christian. So these are contested texts. That's all I'm going to say, just because I want to get to some other people. But yeah, you're on, you're muted. Go ahead, Eric, it's-, it's Is turn? it
3: all in English? Well, it's now? all
1: translated. Uh,
3: it's translated, oh, yeah. Can, can you make it available through Drisha? Thank you.
1: I cannot make the whole text. No,
3: okay. All but right.
1: I can, if you email me, I can send you a link and then you'll get a bad translation to uh, <laughs> Joseph and if that is in the public domain. Uh, okay, yes. Great, thank
0: you. Um, Eric, go ahead.
1: Where would you place a poll in this universalistic on on your scale of three kinds of universalism. And in particular, with the the disputed question about whether he thought that at least for Jews, the covenant remains
3: in force and the law remains in force, or whether he really was going so far as to actually Eliminate
1: Judaism. Yeah, exactly. And so here I refer you to my book, <laughs> which is so obnoxious, by the way, when people do that. Read my book. But don't, because it's expensive. Here's what I think with Paul. I think Paul has been misread. Paul has been misread as being anti-halakha, right? Paul does away with the law. He throws it in the garbage. He hates the distinguishing markers of Judaism. I mean, that's really not the case, right? The question that Paul is dealing with is if you're a Gentile, do you reach the God and Messiah? Do you enter into the continental community through halacha? through Judaism, or is there a direct line to the divinity outside of Judaism? So Paul says, if you're a Jew, great, stay circumcised, keep Kashrut, keep the dietary laws, and keep the Sabbath. So Paul is okay with those specifically Jewish practices for Jews, but what he's saying is that to Gentiles, you don't need to do that. You don't need to go through Judaism, you go outside of it. I think what Paul's saying is very innovative, actually. I'm not sure that it would be smushable into any of the models that I'm dealing with, but. Paul, I think, is deeply influenced by these universalist models, and I do go through that at the end of my book. Uh, Paul is a Jewish thinker, and I think that scholars are wrong to compare uh, his letters preserved in the New Testament with Stoic literature that was written 250 years before. I think that they should be comparing his letters with these universalist Hellenistic texts.
0: anything else last we'll that's 902
2: we can take maybe one or two more judith go ahead i can hear god jove and zeus yeah but we're all worshiping the same god works when everyone comes to observe sukkot it doesn't work when we go to observe one of their festivals
1: right
2: so there isn't quite a universal acceptance yeah of all forms of worship of this God who's, if he's the same God.
1: Well, that's exactly what Aristeas is trying to do, right? We retain our specifically covenantal practices and you retain yours and we worship one God, but we're coming from different angles. So that's exactly what Aristeas is doing, right? It's it's something else. So that's, you know, I have these three models, but what Aristeas is doing is the first model that israel has its separate practices to reach the this god you are worshiping the same god but you have your own different practices so we are not working with a one covenantal community we're working with multiple communities yeah one one more quick question i can't hear you though i think
2: i think someone else raised this at the beginning it it flashed through my mind too you start right away with monotheism when you talk about universalism. There are plenty of religions out there that don't fit this model when we're talking about Christianity and Judaism and, and, and varieties. How does this universalism and Judaism look upon Hindu gods, oh, et cetera?
1: First of all, I carefully did not use the word monotheism. so just. Please note, I did not use that word. I'm almost positive. Uh, but yeah, the, what I did say is that uh, uh, I can't read that comment right now, but I'm sure it's excellent. Um, what I did say is that there is a correlation between moving away from this notion that gods are geographic, right? so we're dealing with a polytheistic world. And as the, as the notion emerges that God is universalist, the Jewish God is universalist, this idea the transition from monolatry to monotheism becomes concretized. The monolatry is this idea that there are multiple gods, but we worship this one god. Um, but Hinduism, you know, I, I can't use these sources to shed light on Hinduism. I will refer to, to a wonderful scholar, Alan Brill, who does ask that very question. And he actually just wrote a wonderful book. I think it's called Rabbi and the Ganges. You should look it up, Alan Brill. Uh, these texts I don't think will shed light on that. but this is actually a a nascent sort of new discipline, a new academic field. And it's very interesting, but it's not my field.
0: And Ozzy, go ahead. I think this will be our last one. Anything else we can put in the chat? And Malka sounds like she's open to getting emails as well. Just be patient because- (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. So with that, um, I think, We will close it for this evening. Thank you so much to Dr. Simkovich for this really, really fascinating class. Um, Thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drusha Live, and on Facebook. Um, Our Kolel Summer Lecture Series will conclude one week from tonight, next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern with Rabbi Dr. Sam Liebens, teaching a class called Exploring Rabbi Sachs on the universal and the particular. If you want to rewatch this class, or if you missed Rabah Wendi Amsalem's class last week, you can see those recordings as well as recordings of all of Drisha's virtual programming on our website at www.drisha.org audiolibrary Also, you can find out more information about all of our upcoming programming, including some just posted classes for Tisha B'Av at www.drisha.org slash classes. Thank you again, Dr. Simkovich, and I look forward to seeing everyone again soon at Drisha.